right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Creekside. It's good to see those of you who are here and, and uh, those joining us via live stream as well. Um, it's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Encourage everybody to find their seats, and uh, we're going we're gonna to start off with some worship. I want to read a couple of verses here um, as we focus in on what the Lord has done. Um, in Zephaniah, the prophet wrote, The Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And then the psalmist says this, Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? We want to focus in on the greatness of our God as we worship him today. This morning, first of all, if you're here as a guest for the very first time, uh, welcome to those online. We're glad that you're worshiping with us. If you're in person here, there is, uh, if you have a bulletin, there on the welcome table as you come in, there is an additional uh, flap on that bulletin. And if you would fill that out and put it in the offering for us, uh, the offering box for us, that's all we'd ask that you do as our guest this morning. We're just glad that you're worshiping with us. I have a few announcements to work through here, so I just appreciate you bear with me. Uh, first of all, I received or received an email, noticed that there's a, a men's choir being organized for Father's Day. So if you're interested in participating in that, all ages are, are welcome. Uh, meet in the fellowship hall after the service, and whoever's in charge of that will uh, hopefully be there and organize you, okay? So we're looking forward to that, I think. Uh, good, good. Good, hopefully you can participate in that. Um, the other thing is I'd just like to, um, I'm going to take a minute and pray uh, because I know some of you are aware of uh, some of the tragic events that took place in Ames uh, this past week uh, at Cornerstone Church in Ames, uh, Ministry of uh, Salt Company and uh, uh, tragedy there. Uh, we, I know personally, nobody who was directly involved in it, but I have two nephews and my, our daughter was involved in that ministry and so, and our future son-in-law, so we know a lot of connections up there. Uh, I just want to pray for the church and pray for the people. Uh, I also want to pray for uh, our brothers and sisters over at Valley Church because one of the young ladies was, uh, uh, grew up in that church and was an attender at Valley uh, Free Church here in Des Moines. So I'm just going to pray. Uh, and ask you to be joining with me as we pray for those people. Father, uh, we come this morning uh, humbled, and even the, the songs that we've been singing, the truths of these songs resonating in our hearts, uh, that you are the cornerstone, um, weak made strong in the light of your love, uh, that in the midst of difficulty and tragedy, uh, you carry us through, you don't always exempt us from. And we pray, I pray, for our brothers and sisters at Cornerstone and, and Valley and for the entire Salt Company uh, group and the people that were impacted more directly. I pray for your peace. I pray for your comfort. I pray that they would rest in you and that they would allow you to carry them through this difficulty, clinging to truths that they know in their hearts but are having trouble putting into their heads. And I pray that your spirit would remind them of what is true and, uh, and, and right and honorable and lovely and pure and that the peace of God that passes all understanding would surround and comfort them in Christ's name I pray amen <clears throat> elders have been uh, talking about a lot of things lately and praying about several things and this morning I'm going to uh, share with you uh, a little bit of uh, a vision that's kind of a beginning of rolling out some things that we're thinking and praying about and going to invite your participation and your input and things in. So uh, if you come in through the sanctuary doors, the main doors there, and I've said this before, there is something written above it that says, leading people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, that's the adopted vision statement for Creekside Church. That's supposedly what we're all about, you know, uh, leading people to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ. And as elders, we've been thinking and praying about this and thinking in terms of, okay, that includes all people of all nations, of all age groups, 
But we feel called and led and directed by God, uh, we think, we're seeking God's face on it, that we should be targeting more specifically uh, some of the, the younger generation uh, in our church and in the, the community that we, communities that we serve to make future disciples. And so along those lines, uh, we are realizing that, and it's not new, new to you, and I'm going to be talking about this when I share, that uh, young people are probably as never before under attack uh, by the, the forces of evil and the forces of the world. Uh, you just look around at uh, our world, and we're going to talk about this, dishonesty, immorality is just like in front of your face and you're supposed to embrace it. Uh, there's confusion about all kinds of what uh, the Bible is clear on. There's all kinds of confusion in the culture about what the Bible is, is specifically spot on about. And our young people are being bombarded with it in, their, in the schools and with media and all these kinds of things. And uh, perversion and pride and sin is just being elevated and magnified and normalized. And it's tragic. And we realize that our, our kids and our students are on the, on the front line of it. And uh, they're very vulnerable. And they're very impressionable. And they're growing up increasingly in homes that are unstable. Uh, so we feel like and feel led uh, that in light of this, in light of the proclivity of young people to be more receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, that we as a church body and a church leadership uh, feel like we should make an intentional investment in, uh, in staffing to uh, help deal with reaching this group, but, but discipling the, the people that are coming and reaching out to those who aren't. And so we're considering and praying about uh, adding staff person to uh, help us in this ministry more directly in reaching out and ministering to the young people that are already attending and those who, who might become. Now you say, well, uh, that's a pretty bold, bold ask and a pretty bold move for a, for a church our size. And we say, yep, uh, we, we're, not, we're not ignorant and we're not blind, but we also believe that we have a big God. And we also believe that he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to his power, which mightily works within us. That's Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. And so uh, we want to trust him with it and we're going to make an investment or we want to make an investment the returns of which are uncertain. But I don't know how many of you have checked your 401k lately. Uh, uh, you made a lot of investment, right? And uh, maybe not so much now. Uh, it's kind of uncertain. So what isn't uncertain in these days? And so we're going to trust God for it. Our job is to, uh, to, to, to sow seeds, to water seeds, to plant seeds and sometimes to reap the harvest and we don't know what that's going to be and so that's our, our, our vision and that's our uh, commitment to it and we're, we're excited we're excited about what God's doing right now I mean you know some of you don't come on Wednesday nights and you don't see what's happening on, on Wednesday nights but uh, I want you to get a little bit of a vision for what does happen here on Wednesday nights with regard to our, our, our youth particularly the 6th through through 12th grade so on that. That's the, that's the plea. Thanks, Mike Johnson, for putting that together. That's some of what happens just with the 6th through 8th uh, grade, or 6th through 12th grade that comes on Wednesday night and outside of, uh, outside of that. Uh, there is a, a great opportunity we have, and we see that opportunity, and we're asking you to pray with us to, to seize uh, that opportunity to, to minister to these people. And we recognize we have limitations to our volunteers. We have some great volunteers, but we recognize their limitations. They, they only have so much time. These people are working full-time jobs and then coming here and volunteering on the, on the nights and weekends. And so we want to more intentionally invest uh, and reach out, uh, minister to and the ones that are coming and reach out to a, a vast, uh, vast number of young people outside of our church. If you were paying close attention to the video, uh, there's a good percentage of the people that are attending here, uh, attending our youth group that, that don't attend church here on, on a regular basis. And some of them are believers and need to be discipled up and grow in their walk with God. Some of them are unbelievers and, and are hearing the gospel and being reached for, 
for Christ. And so that's, that's our, our idea. And we also recognize that the future of Creekside Church depends upon an investment in, in the younger generation. And every church realizes that. And so we're uh, taking that pretty seriously. And so we think that a younger staff person would really be able to communicate not just to the young people, but also to our congregation as a whole, our younger adults, that we're really serious about reaching that next generation for Christ. And so we're asking you, and we will be asking you uh, to pray with us and to give us some input and to put your, uh, your put some uh, commitment to where we are going. And so we're going to roll out more things. I'm just introducing it today, okay? So it's kind of like, okay, this is just kind of let you th- sit and soak and think about this. But our direct intention and prayer is that we, in the, in the next several months, would be investing in uh, an additional staff person, particularly targeted towards ministry to uh, youth who are uh, the 6th through 12th grade age group. So that's, that's it. If you have any questions, talk to any one of the elders, talk to me. You'll be hearing more as we move forward, okay? Um, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for uh, the, the wonderful opportunities that you present to us to, to share and to show the, the love of Christ to a, a lost and dying world. And I pray now uh, that as we uh, think about the songs that we've sung, as we think about the, the truths that are contained in them, as we look into your word, that your spirit would guide us and direct us. And Lord, I, I, I feel this, this passage of scripture has so much to offer, and yet I pray for clarity. I pray for you to speak to each of our hearts in a way that you know we need to hear so that the message would be driven home to us and that you'd give us real encouragement as we go forward into this week to make disciples of all nations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I I kind of... uh, Uh, laid it out there for you a little bit but increasingly I think our culture is uh, making it very apparent that believers are in a battle if you read the news if you listen to the news uh, some of you if you're watching tv if you're just living life you understand that uh, it's pretty crazy out there think about this Uh, this whole month is a, a promotion of pride in promiscuity and perversion in our country. Think about the fact that the legalized taking of unborn life is still the law of the land in the United States. Some of us are praying that this month that will change, but it still is the law of the land. The number one killer of youth is legal in the United States of America. Young people are being trafficked. Young people are being taught what is absolutely contrary to the Word of God in schools from preschool to college and graduate school. Our legal system prosecutes and persecutes Christian perspectives with prejudice and without impunity, all across our our land. Um, And how do we respond as those who profess to know Jesus? Well, our our first response is gracious restraint, okay? So I'm not here advocating uh, uh, militant behavior necessarily, I'm saying, and as we look at the passage, there may be a time for that. But what I think is the, the admonition of the Lord is for gracious restraint in the midst of all of these things. But the question is, should people of faith ever fight? I heard a story. Uh, I don't know that it's true. can't corroborate the story. But there was a, a young man who became a, a Christian. And he, this was several decades ago, he went to a large metropolitan city. And as he got off the bus in the metropolitan city and set his suitcase down, a would-be robber whacked him across the face with his fist. And before he could catch himself, he caught another one on the other cheek. And then he came to his senses and he said as a young believer, well, the Lord told me, to turn the other cheek 
And I have done that, and as far as I know, I have no other command. And then he unleashed his boxing expertise on the would-be attacker and uh, uh, took care of him. It's a comical illustration, but the question still becomes, uh, should, should we, as believers, is it ever proper? Is it ever proper for us to defend our family? Is it ever proper to defend ourselves? Is it ever proper to defend and stand up for our moral principles, our biblical moral principles? So if I say moral principles or if I say religious principles, don't, don't take this as some uh, attempt on me to water it down. I mean by that moral. Uh, when the founders of our Constitution said that the republic that upon which they built this land depends upon a moral and educated or a religious and educated constituency, they meant Christian. Okay, so if I say moral principles or biblical principles, I'm saying uh, the, the scripture. Do we ever have a right to do it? What, and if we do, what does it look like? Well, uh, this morning for answers to those questions, we're going to look again at the life of the man of faith, Abram. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 14, where we're going to look at the three revelations or manifestations of authentic faith in the face of, of a fight that I hope can guide us in life and in our approach to life and in our attempt to, to glorify God. Now, I'm going to attempt to read down through this text, and I've read it several times, and uh, you can follow along with me. I'm in chapter 14 of Genesis. We're going to read the first 24 verses, okay? So hold on. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasser, Kedor Lamor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all of these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedor Lamir, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year of Kedor Lamir, the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim, in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzim, in Ham, and Emim, in Sheva, Kiriath, Aim, and the Horites in the, Mount of, in the Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishphat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the kings of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, came out, and they arrayed for battle against, the, in the, against them in the valley of Sidim, against Kedor Lamir, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now in the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country, and they took all of the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. And they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram, the Hebrew, now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and brother of Aner, these were allies of Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided the forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods that and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and all the women and the people. Then after his return from the defeat of Kedor Lo'emir, the kings who were with him, the kings of, king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, now he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, and he said, Blessed be Abram. Of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave a tenth, and gave him a tenth of all. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give to the people, give the people to me, and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High. 
possessor of heaven and earth, and I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except that what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take their share. As I look at the text, I see the three manifestations of Abraham's authentic faith in the Lord that helped and, and revealed to me and revealed to me how we could base our lives and live as we face battles that we engage in. And the first manifestation is our bravery in the face of adversity. And there are a couple of considerations that I want to bring, bring out in the text here. First of all is we all encounter difficulty. That's what Abraham encountered. He encountered difficulty. Now we looked at Abram and he had been called out of Ur of the Chaldees and he settled there in Canaan and floated around a little bit and we skipped over a couple chapters and we got here in Genesis chapter 14. And in Genesis chapter 14, Abram has separated from Lot, his nephew, because they had so much stuff, they had to separate. Lot went to the south, down around the south part of the Dead Sea, where he went to Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abram uh, was in a completely different place up in the hills. And so what happens? What types of, uh, of adversity call for bravery? Well, the text brings out first the first form, and that is when people need to be protected. I'm not going to go through all those names again, but there were four kings, okay? Uh, four eastern kings. These guys came from Mesopotamia. They came from the east, and they came to squelch the rebellion of the Transjordan people because the people in and around the Jordan River had been serving them for 12 years and paying a tribute, paying a tax. And they said, we're tired of that, so they gave up paying the tax, and then the 13th year, these kings said, oh, uh, we'll show you what happens if you don't pay the tax. And so they came and attacked them. And they didn't just attack the ones right near. They, they went far up into the north and they circled back around and they came down to the south and they overtook the five kings, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, the people who were in that region. I'm not going to get into all the details and I didn't get, put up a map to show you. Just believe me, it's in the Middle East, okay? That's, uh, they, 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 they just, uh, they, a lot of war going on, okay? But there were four kings, and they defeated the five kings in and around Sodom, and they ended up taking Lot, who had moved to Sodom, that's Abraham's nephew, they took him and all of his household captive. So we go to chapter 4, look at verses 11 and 12. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their food supply, and departed. And they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions, and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Okay. So these cold-hearted, unrelenting, unstoppable, ruthless dictators came and they took it all. And what we see, I think, in, in Abram's life is an example that we, establishes our right and responsibility, I think, to act bravely in coming to the aid of our family, of those who have been disadvantaged, those who have been taken advantage of, those who have been unjustly abused. Her son was, I don't know, seven or eight years old, and uh, there was one of the neighbor kids that thought that my son would be a good uh, doll to use in practicing his WWE uh, wrestling moves on. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that's a world wrestling, uh, I call it exhibition, I don't know what E stands for, but it's these uh, professional actors who uh, are pretending like they're wrestling, Okay. And they do these pile drivers where they turn people upside down and drive their head into the ground and all this kind of stuff. And so one of the neighbor kids thought it'd be fun to use my son as his dummy. Uh, but my son's dad, me, didn't think that was such a good idea. So I went to the neighbor kid and I said, listen, if that ever happens again, you're going to be dealing with me. Did I have a right to do that? I think I had a responsibility to do that. Uh, I didn't lay a hand on the kid, I didn't hurt the kid, uh, didn't, no, nothing like that, but I told him this was not acceptable. So do we have a right? Do we have a, I think Abram's example in the Old Testament gives some warrant, and I think important warrant, to do that. Our family members, the unborn, those children who are being trafficked, the elderly, those who are persecuted, those who are oppressed, in our country and others. At some point, 
as Christians, uh, we have to pause and say, do we have a responsibility and a right to defend those people? I think we do. We'll tease it out a little bit more, okay? Okay, well, when does that happen, and how do you know where you're supposed to do it? The second group is not really directly mentioned in the text, but I think, the not group, the second reason we should act bravely is, I think, in regards to our principles, when principles uh, need to be defended, when our biblical principles need to be defended. I've mentioned before that during the height of COVID-19, uh, that John MacArthur at Grace Community Church in Southern California, they were prohibited from meeting as a church during COVID by the state of California. And they continued to meet in defiance of the, the state law because they, not, not initially, but eventually they met in defiance because they believed God's word and principles for gathering as a church was more important than the government mandate. What I want to say is that increasingly it seems to me that, that believers uh, are pressured. In our country, we're pressured to be silent about our faith. You're, you're not supposed to say anything. We're pressured to embrace unbiblical definitions of marriage. We're, impre- we're uh, pressured to embrace unbiblical practices. Whereby people who are parading in dresses as women who are men are taken into our public libraries and the little kids are brought there to have story hour in the face of cross-dressing people. And we are increasingly encouraged to compromise our purity, encouraged to compromise our honesty, all in the name of doing what goes along with society. And I would say that At some point, we need to take a pause and say, okay, are we okay with this? Are we going to just accept this? We're just going to roll over and play dead. I think about Jesus. Uh, Jesus confronted the religious leaders, and we should do that too. I mean, when there's uh, something in opposition to biblical truth in the church, we need to stand up for that, as Jesus did. Uh, You know, he said, "I'm, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You know, if you don't like that, deal with it. Uh, my guys are going to eat grain on the Sabbath day because I'm more concerned about their heart than I am about your laws, okay? John the Baptist went in front of Herod, and he says, look, it's really not, it's not right for you to have your brother's wife. Uh, that's immoral. Bad guy. Shouldn't do that. The apostles said in Acts chapter 4, that was Matthew chapter 14, if you're taking notes, you can write that down. And then Acts chapter 4, verse 19, and Acts chapter 5, Verses 28 and 29, the apostles were told, hey, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And they said, whether it's right in the sight of God to obey you rather than God, you be the judge, but as for us, we will not stop speaking about Christ. So we have a choice. Now, I'm not making a decision for everyone, and we'll get into that in a minute, but Christians must bravely, I think, confront Rarely, rarely with force. We must bravely confront, rarely, rarely with force, opposition to God's truth. Those who oppress the weak, those who oppress the vulnerable, those who are in opposition to God, those who assault biblical principles and biblical truth in the workplace, in our community, in our churches, and in society. Members of our military were forced, whether they had religious convictions or not, to the contrary, uh, to get uh, the the COVID-19 vaccinations. And some of them had religious convictions against doing so. Biblical convictions, you don't have to agree with their, their decision about whether they come to that conclusion, but some of them had questions about the making of the mRNA, uh, DNA back vaccines and how it was uh, produced and um, the, the use of, of uh, um, fetal tissues and, and the development of that sort of stuff. And so they said, no, we're not going to take it. And there was one um, officer recently who was, uh, he sued for religious exemption. Um, and he's actually won his lawsuit. Uh, he, was, he won his lawsuit. He sued the, the government who said, you have to get this vaccination. And I'm not here talking about whether you have to get a vaccination or not. I'm, not. I'm not going there. I am saying if you have a religious conviction against doing something that you have based in the Bible, you shouldn't be forced to do it, I don't think. Well, he didn't think he should, so that's a, a hill he chose to die on. 
He stood up for it, and he was vindicated at least. So we encounter difficulty. I I guess I want to leave you with that. There are dilemmas in our culture that are facing us that are not easy to deal with. If I had daughters, I have two of them, if I had my daughters and they were now going to a, a certain school that said it was okay for any kind of any person to go into any bathroom or any locker room, I'd have a problem with that. And I think we should be taking a look at what's going on in the culture and then as Christians evaluating whether we're okay with that and if we're not okay then what is acceptable for us to do and that's where I think Abram looked at the scene and he said look they took my nephew Lot and his whole family and all of his possessions and guess what I'm not okay with that and so he took action so when there's principles and so that's where the the the, engaging courageously not only are we encountering difficulty but at points we need to engage courageously verses 13 through 16 then a fugitive came and told abram the hebrew i like the way that's injected in there he was not at home he was a hebrew this was not his homeland he was a foreigner here okay Abraham the Hebrew, now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, um, so he's camping out uh, with uh, by the Amorite, oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, and these were his allies with Abraham. And when Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Without hesitation, at least it seems for me in the text, without hesitation, he embarked on the 120-mile trip. Abram's in the south. Dan is in the north, 120 miles, with his 318 trained men plus these other dudes who were his allies to engage the plundering four-king confederacy. Here was his plan. Split up the team, attack by night. And guess what happened? You know what happened. They won the victory, all right? Everything, his stealth attack under the cloak of darkness resulted in victory, even with a meager force, 318, okay, plus the other, his allies. And I want you to read verse 11 with me. And they took, this is the Eastern Confederacy, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, supply and departed all 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 verse 16 and he that is Abram brought back all the goods and also brought back his relatives lot and his possessions and all the women and the people all they took all he brought back all this was a complete victory great courage yes great leadership yes great military strategy yes great faith Yes. Resounding victory? Yes. John Calvin put it this way. It ought to be ascribed to the faith of Abram that with a small band he dared to assail a numerous army elated with victory. Now, what's my point? It seems to me that from this text, Abraham reveals to us that sometimes... Not every time, and not the first thing necessarily. Sometimes we have to stand up and we have to fight. That it's warranted. Even though force isn't and shouldn't be our first line of defense. I'll say that again. I don't think it's, that's not Jesus' way that we remember. We, we preached through Matthew, and here's Peter getting his sword out. And Jesus is saying, okay, calm down, Peter. You know, some things we just have to wait and see how this plays out. But Abraham, what? Abraham did fight. And guess what? Abraham had prepared his men to fight. 318 of them trained in his own household. And guess what also? After they, Abraham fought with his trained men, God said, uh, good on you. God blessed him in, in, in all of this. And so I read all that and I say that, okay, There are times when it's okay. Bravery is needed. 
I think, courage in our fight, in our fight to defend our families, to defend our possessions, which God gave. Abraham, first part of the Bible, had possessions. Possessions are not wrong. They're not sinful. They're not bad. It's not wrong to have stuff. Abraham had it, and he had a lot of it. Does that mean everybody has a lot of it? No, Abraham and Lot had a lot of it. A lot of other people didn't have a lot of it. But they had some of it. And he saw his duty. It's our, 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 our responsibility. I think it's our right to defend our family, our possessions, our lives, our country, our practices, our practice and proclamation of biblical truth. To fight and defend those who are the oppressed and the weak and the vulnerable. Some of you know who Tim Tebow is. Some of you don't know and some of you don't care. But Tim Tebow was a two-time um, Heisman Trophy winner. He was an All-American football player. He went on to play professional football and baseball. Uh, he has his own foundation, and they raised like a million dollars last year or a couple years ago to help fight human trafficking. Young boys and girls captured, kidnapped, sold into slavery, and they used their resources and their power and their efforts to free them from it. Isn't that an atrocity that's worth fighting for? Well, the Tebow Foundation is one of the things that they do. They also have this Night to Shine thing where they go around all over the country and they uh, have li uh, little uh, special dinners and things for those who are handicapped, those who are, are mentally, physically challenged. They, they stand up for, for the needy and the hurting. And we, we, we will speak the truth in love. I guess my question for me is, will I speak the truth in love? And when I say we confront it, we confront it in love. I mean, it's not... It's not that we are just belligerent and obnoxious. Will we speak up in our family gatherings? We speak up in our workplace or stand up in our workplace. And I know, I've talked to students, I've talked to employees. It's like, well, if I do that, I, I could lose my job. If I do that, I might be kicked out of school. And teachers, you know. I'm not telling them that they have to do it. I'm just saying we need to ask the question. Am I willing to stand up in, in, in my gatherings in the school or on the job to defend my faith? To decry falsehood? To say, you know what? This is crazy. God says there's a male and there's a female. So what part of that are you confused about? And if you are, then let me help you. And it's not right for young teenage girls to have to share a restroom or a shower or a locker room with a dude. That's not right. I don't care what planet you're from. This is just contrary to God's word. And if you're a Christian, it's our responsibility to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's our responsibility to share with people what sin is. Because if they don't know what sin is, then they'll never repent of sin. And if they never repent of sin, then they're destined to hell. So we don't go in there with guns blazing like, hey, look at me, I'm, I'm the most holy person in the world. No, I'm not. I'm a sinful person. But by the grace of God, I'm saved. And I want what I have for you. You know, God bless that mom in, in Uvalde, Texas. You know, she was handcuffed. She showed up at the scene, and all these kids are in this room with this maniac who's, who's got a gun, and they handcuffed her. And she convinced them to let her go. What'd she do? Jumped the fence, ran into the school, and came out with her two kids. It was time for action. It wasn't time for talk, it wasn't time for negotiation, it wasn't time to debate it. There's people in danger. Go! Folks, there are times when we need to act bravely. And I'm speaking to, you know, I, I'm a coward. You know, I, 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 I don't like conflict. I don't like, uh, you know, speaking up. But I look at Abram and I say, okay, they took my nephew, time to move. Secondly, our humility in victory. 
in verses 17 through 20, uh, there are three questions that are answered that I think expose the value, the importance, and the presence of, of humility. Uh, first of all, the first question, what tests our humility? Uh, upon Abram's return in verse 17, then after his return from the defeat of Kedor Lamur and the kings who were with him, he, he's met by these two dudes uh, and two kings. And they couldn't be more opposite. Okay, so the first one that shows up is Sodom, uh, uh, the king of Sodom, uh, Bera. And uh, Bera is the king over the most perverse and promiscuous city, or one of them, in, in the ancient Near East. And he's also a warlord. I mean, he's proven that, right? He's been out marching around, and he's a warlord. And so that's the first guy that meets him. And then secondly... Uh, he's met by this guy by the name of Melchizedek. Uh, it says in verse 17, the king, uh, uh, he met him in Shabbat, the king's valley, and then verse 18, and Melchizedek, uh, king of Salem. Well, his, his name, Melchizedek, literally means, if you translate Melchizedek, it's king of righteousness. Okay? But he's also the king of Salem. So his name means king of righteousness, but he's designated as the king of Salem, and Salem means peace. So he's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. Okay? And he's the ruler of Jerusalem, and he stood for righteousness, and he stood for peace. These were the virtues that he exercised in his life and in his leadership. That's his life. So you got Bera, the pagan king, and Melchizedek, the priest of God, because he's also a priest designated in the text. And and he's a priest of God Most High, El Elyon, the Most High God. Okay, so it's not, he's not like one of, the, one of the ranking gods of Babylon. He's not one of the subservient gods in some other place. He's top dog. Okay, he is, he is God Most High. And Melchizedek, he's a mediator between the people, Jews and Gentiles, and this God who is the possessor of heaven and earth. If you possess something, what does it say about you? You're in control of it. You own it. It's yours. You do with it as you please. You have a junk day uh, in your. I mean, we, in Urban Day we had the you know set this stuff out of the junk junk, and you know, all <laughs> the week before people are driving up and down the streets with their pickups and their trailers. Collecting the junk. But the people who own it are setting it up. They're, they're giving it up. If you own it, you possess it, you control it, you do with it what you want. He is the God Most High. And Melchizedek is the priest. He's a mediator between God Most High, the sovereign ruler of the universe, and people. He's, this, he's a mediator between the, the one who has all the power, yet who's personally involved in the lives of who, those who he's created. That's the mediator. And what does he say? What does this mediator say to Abram? We don't know what Bera, the king of Sodom, says to Abram until we get down a little further. But what is the first thing that Melchizedek says? Read it in the text. And it says in verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Oh, we'll get to that in a little bit. But uh, Celebrate the victory. Consecrate the victory. And commune with God. In a little bit, we're going to have bread and wine. No, juice. We left it there long enough, it'd be wine. But we're, we're, it's just juice right now, okay? So, you know, the bread and the juice, which in some ways can, can maybe connect here because there was communion with God and celebration of what God had done. And then he says this, And he said, and he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram. Now the ESV says, by God Most High. The New American Standard says, of God Most High. Somewhat of a distinction without a difference, because if God's messenger, mediator, is saying, you're blessed of God, uh, you're blessed by God. Okay, So he's, he's blessed. He's blessing him. By this statement, the actions of Abraham are sanctioned. And Melchizedek is held up to be the priest, because who blesses somebody except somebody who's higher than them. That Abraham was of God most high says that he was one of the called ones of God. He was one of God's children. Okay? So 
a decisive victory and, and in the important company, what would you think? You came off the victory and all of a sudden the dude comes out of the valley. He says, hey, blessed be you of God most high. You're blessed by God. And Abraham has just recently learned about God. He, it could be a real infusion to your ego. He just won the battle, 318 of us, well, out of three, four other guys, oh, 322 of us, 21 of us, against the whole Eastern Confederacy, and then I get blessed by God, uh, and this dude who's the king of Salem, king of righteousness, he's there, it must be pretty important. I mean, how do you think, now, assuming that people had the high respect for the office, but the NCAA national champions football, basketball, they get invited to the White House, right? Well, that's kind of a, a neat gig. You get special treatment. You get invited to the East Lawn of the White House. You get a big ceremony for it. That could be a, a stroke to your ego. But here we have them. What tests our faith is the victory, the success, when, when we're, we're, we accomplish something, you know? A decisive victory Gives us that opportunity. Then we see what triggers his humility. In, in light of the fact that he could have been very arrogant, we see just the opposite. But what triggered it? The blessed and triumphant uh, man is reminded of where his victory came from. <laughs> Look at verse 19, uh, verse 20. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Uh, uh, before you go thinking that this was all you, Abram, just remember. God did it. He delivered your enemies into your hand, okay? When you think about it, Abram and his force, they were no match for the Eastern Confederacy, right? But God worked miraculously, and God was on his side. And Abraham proves that he was really not that big of a, a guy, but he was treated well. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 7, without dispute, the lesser... Abram is blessed by the greater, Melchizedek. I just heard that Clint Eastwood turned 92. Right? Tom Cruise just came out with uh, the, the remake of uh, Top Gun. So if Tom Cruise uh, says, you know, well, that Clint Eastwood guy, he's, he's, a, you know, he's a real good actor, blah, 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 blah. Everybody's going, okay, that's nice. But if Clint Eastwood said of Tom Cruise, this guy is really a good actor. He's really got it going on. I think more people would say, wow, you know, the master, Clint Eastwood, is praising this young guy, who's not really all that young, but he's praising him. The, the, the lesser would be blessed by the greater. Here we have the lesser is blessed by the greater. Melchizedek's priesthood, according to Hebrews, is perpetual. And he's powerful to bless. And he's a priest and a king, which in the Old Testament, it's like, well, that blew their, that blew their categories. Because you couldn't be, uh, the law of Moses forbids you to be a priest and a king. You, you just couldn't do that. Uh, Saul got into problems uh, when he tried to be a priest and a king. Uh, and the kingship was taken from him. You don't do that. However, interestingly enough, to be a priest and a king was necessary. It's necessarily part of a superior priesthood, of which Melchizedek was the forerunner. Okay? And Melchizedek was a foreshadowing and, and culminated in, in the, the person and the work of Jesus because you have what's written here in, in Genesis chapter 14. Then, a thousand years later, David is writing of his Lord, David's Lord, how can... My Lord say, how can the Lord say to my Lord? David's writing of his Lord in Psalm 110 about this Melchizedekian priesthood and about his Lord being a Melchizedekian priesthood. A thousand years later, in Hebrews chapters 5 through 7, we find out that the writer of Hebrews says that the Lord of David is the ultimate Melchizedekian priesthood, Jesus, who is priest and king. And so here, Melchizedek is a priest and a king as a foreshadowing of the ultimate priest and king, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate Melchizedekian priesthood. And you see that he is the ultimate, he's royal in his, Jesus is the king of righteousness because he possesses righteousness. He is the king of peace because he has peace and he is the king of peace, but not just because he possesses them, but because he allows us to possess them. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. He, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made what? The righteousness of God in him. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. King of righteousness, king of peace. Not just because he possessed it, but because he enables us to possess it if we put our faith, our trust in Christ. Hebrews goes on to say that he is able to save forever. Christ is this priest, this forever priest after the order of Melchizedek, the supreme fulfillment of it because he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. He's always living to make intercession for us. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 7. He's the ultimate priest, the ultimate king because he made a perfect sacrifice. His body, broken. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 13, the blood of both goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer sprinkling sanctifies the, the flesh for a time. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself up without blemish cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He's the priest. He's the king. And we must turn and trust in him. Abram's victory could have easily led to arrogance and an air of superiority, but Melchizedek reminded him, hey, God gave it to you. God gave it to you. I like uh, James Boyce says this. Everything was his, Abrams. Few people had ever had such a sublime chance to float forward on a cloud of triumph. But no, Abraham does not throw his weight around. So what tells us that he was humble? Read the end of verse 20. It says, was delivered enemies into your hands and he gave him a tenth of all. Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. He offered up a sacrifice, completely voluntary. There's no requirement in the law at this point. There's no uh, tithing, no giving, nothing in the law. The Old Testament law hadn't even been given yet. But he, he gave out of gratitude, acknowledging Melchizedek's superiority. And ultimately, understanding that God was the one that had given him victory. So that's why he, he gave. MacArthur put it this way, he gave freely and generously and he gave the best that he had, not the leftovers. So, if we ever experience victory in our defense of our family, in the defense of the, un, uh, the unborn or the protecting of a person or our principles, our biblical principles, if we experience the victory, can also be in, in our victory in sports, our victory in business, our victory in our family. Where should the credit go? Not to us. It should go to God. We should give Him the glory. The lesson of Abraham should ring in our ears. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, not that we're adequate in and of ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy from God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 7, uh, Paul says that, uh, who regards you as superior? Uh, what do you have that you have not received? And if you've received it, then why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Well, I earned it. Okay, and who gave you the intelligence and the physical ability to actually do the work? Who gave you the opportunity to do that work? Who gave you the opportunity to present your arguments before the Supreme Court if you happen to win the case and Roe versus Wade is defeated? Do we gloat in victory? No. We give God glory and we give God honor. I'm going to skip over those slides of those two guys. The third manifestation that we see in the text of authentic faith is this our integrity and vulnerability. It's a tempting offer uh, that Abram receives. In verse 21, we see now Bera, the king of Sodom, uh, said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. That would have been a good deal for Abram. Here he is, a new guy in the land. All he has to do is give the people to, to Bera, and everybody goes, wow, he's really a generous guy. He gave the king back his people so he can rule over these people, and he gets to keep all the goods, increasing his wealth. Abram saw through it. Despite 
all that he stood to gain. There were a couple of things, two commodities that were worth more than all of the glory that he would receive. First of all, his faithfulness to the Lord or our faithfulness to the Lord should be of greater value to us than temporary gain, than temporary uh, uh, affirmation from the crowd. And there's two manifestations of his faithfulness. First of all, there's a protection of God's glory in verses 22 and 23. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything, it is yours. Okay, he made, a, he made a covenant to God. Abraham held the wealth, but the wealth didn't hold Abram. God did. God held Abram. God was in charge, and so he said, okay, it's, it's yours. I'm not going to do it. Abraham wouldn't give in to this thing because he didn't want to rob God of the glory, the glory that the victory had come from God, the glory that he had committed his faithfulness to God, that God would take care of him, the promise that God had given to bless him. I'm not giving that up. You take this stuff. You can have it. I don't want you coming back on me and saying later, oh yeah, I made Abraham, Abraham wealthy. No, not at all. I didn't do, you, you didn't do that. I think of, I told you before, I mentioned the actor Kevin Sorbo. Uh, he was a very prominent actor in Hollywood. Well, he gave it up, uh, a lot of it, because he didn't want to compromise his convictions. He wasn't willing to sell out to the, the Hollywood people. So he has his own studio. He does his own thing now. So he wasn't willing to sell out, wasn't willing to compromise. Then we need to have principle over pain. Abram's goal in going was not to make money. His motive wasn't money. His concern wasn't for the cash. And if he had taken the, the money, he would have kind of undermined his real goal in going. He would have said, oh yeah, he, all he did, he just wanted the money. No, that's not why he went. That's not why he went at all. He wanted to glorify God. And he couldn't glorify God and prove that God was in, uh, in charge if he had taken the money and somehow the people could come back and say, oh yeah, you did that because you just wanted to get, get rich. He says no. Despite the temptation, he, he, he abandoned it. He didn't take anything. And the text emphasizes that he took nothing. Two times it says he took nothing. All that he had he gave, he did nothing. Well, he gave 10% to Melchizedek and he made sure that the boys were taken care of. But other than that, he gave everything back. Abraham was resolute in his commitment, what he'd promised to the Lord, and he was resting in God's promise. You know, the, the psalmist says that uh, we, we, we should swear, the righteous man swears to his own hurt. You ever done this? You ever said, okay, Lord, you get me out of this situation, or, you, you know, if, if you have actually happen to bless me with this uh, financial decision, I'll, I'll make sure that I, I give you, I'll take care of it, do so much. And then God handles it, takes care of it, he blesses you. Yeah, well, you better, better ante up because uh, uh, you didn't get there on your own. God is the one in charge. Every victory we have is from the Lord. We fight the good fight in faith when we place biblical principles and our promises to God over potential or actual pain. Is it more important to me to be obedient to the Word of God or to have the approval of my peers? Is it more precious to me to stand for biblical truth or to get a promotion? Is it more precious to me to follow through on my commitment to serve and, and to, to give even though it's painful? <laughs> I uh, had a guy in my office many years ago, came up to me and he said, uh, Pastor, um, you know, it was a tragic story. Uh, he had moved with his wife and his family to some place in Missouri, and he had uh, four kids and his wife, and his wife left him. He'd come into my office, this is in Iowa, so, and he says, they just walked out, and I have to get out of the house. Can you help me? This is like on a Thursday. And if you're a pastor, Sunday's always coming, okay? So it's like, it's, Sunday's always coming. And this is on a Thursday. So he says, yeah, I got a friend. He's got a trailer. We can get in the trailer. We can go down there and uh, we can load the stuff up and then come back. And I'm thinking, we have to drive like 10 hours to get there. And then we have to, and I don't know what I'm getting into when I get there. And then we got to come back. And I said, 
okay, Lord, I should probably do this, even though every part of my body doesn't want to do this. So I said, yes, 16-foot livestock trailer, okay, and an old pickup truck. And we got down in the middle of Kansas City, ran out of gas on the freeway during rush hour. So I said, you stay here. I, I, we flagged a guy down. He had a little uh, can, so I went with this guy, got some gas, came back. The guy was gone. Middle of Kansas City. I didn't have a cell phone. We didn't have cell phones and nothing. I didn't know what was going on. So long story short, uh, the cops had come along and put some gas in his tank and said, get out of here. You're, you know, you're obstructing traffic. So he drove around, and I was sitting there, and then finally he came back and uh, got in 10 hours down to Cape somewhere in Missouri along the Missouri River, got in their five-bedroom house completely intact. We got a 16-foot livestock trailer. We worked all night. We got there about 10 o'clock at night, uh, and uh, we didn't, I didn't sleep. We packed, we packed all the food in the freezer, stayed in the freezer. Every per- piece of clothing was used to pack stuff. We took everything off the wall. We packed that trailer as tight as we could. We uh, wired, like a bunch of hillbillies, we wired bed frames on the outside of it. And uh, we had to leave a few of the, the toys there. We got stuff in the back of it. We got five-bedroom house in a 16-foot trailer and uh, the rest of it. And we headed home. We got home at 1 o'clock on Saturday morning, and I was preaching the next day. Not what I signed up for. We make a commitment to God's truth and God's word for God's glory. And we stick with it because he gets the credit. And Abraham had been in communion with God the bread and the cup, to consecrate the victory, to celebrate and commune with God. And I believe that his communion with God was able to give him the courage to fight. The courage to be humble. The courage to act with integrity. And then there's faithfulness to our Lord, but there's fairness to others. Notice how Abram, at the end of the text, he doesn't impose his standard on everybody else. He doesn't say, I went up to fight and I'm not taking any of this stuff, so my guys can't take any of this stuff. No, give them what they eat, and uh, whatever their share of, the, of the, the take is, that's fine with me. That's fine with me. He prioritizes it. And so I think our, our commitment to God personally for assisting the less fortunate. God hasn't called everybody to be in the fight against human trafficking. We should be praying for it. We should be, by God's grace, be willing to support it. But that doesn't mean we're on the front lines of it. Not every one of us is, you know, marching in protest in Washington, D.C. in the mall against abortion. That, but bless those who are. So their fight isn't necessarily my fight, but I can join them in a tangential way. Our involvement in ministry isn't necessarily the standard. My commitment as far as my personal devotional time and my growth, in, that's not, it doesn't have to be yours. Not your, my standard isn't yours. Your standard isn't mine. We have to make these decisions. I just feel like God is saying through, the, through Abraham that sometimes we need to act with bravery in the fight against evil, in the fight against what's wrong. And sometimes we always need to act with humility. And then we need to live with integrity. But the specifics of it, we have to work out ourselves. If you don't know Jesus, the King of Righteousness, the King of Peace, my call is to to surrender to Him because He will bring you in right standing with God and He will give you peace because right now there's enmity between you and God. He will bring peace between you and God that can never exist apart from your relationship with Him. And if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if we know Christ, then my call to me is to act bravely in the face of the fight. And most often that's going to be I have to stand up for the truth. Most often it's going to be I'm going to get involved physically to help people who are being hurt by opposition. Sometimes I may have to get in the way of somebody who's going to do harm to my child. That's what it takes. That's what it takes. I may have to jump the fence and and go into the school and rescue my kids if somebody else is not going to do it. But I want to exercise humility in every victory. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. And I want to do it with integrity. And and so when when we break bread and the cup, we're communing with God. We're remembering that Jesus is the Melchizedekian priest who died for us to set us free that we might live forever. And he's ever living to make intercession for us. 
So if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to come and, and take of these elements. There's some at the back, some at the front. We've got gluten-free option at each place. And uh, take the cup and the bread. You can take it up here or you can take it back and take it at your seat. But while the praise team is playing, examine your heart and search your heart and say, Lord, thank you for what you've done for me. And now help me to live for you. Let's pray. Father, um, these are hard words from Abram. Challenging words. And I pray that each of us in our own context would be able to understand when we need to act with bravery. Faith, trusting you when the world is screaming at us, when the world is in opposition to us, when the world is going to cancel us. I just pray uh, that you would give us courage, that we would act with humility, and that we would operate with integrity for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.